Welcome to Fable and the Verbivore. I'm Fable, Beth Stedman. I'm the Verbivore, Laura Johnson. And this is a podcast for writers who love to read. Readers who love to write. And anyone who loves words. words. So today we have Dickie Kitchen Jr. with us, and we are super excited to talk with him. We've gotten connected with him over Instagram. He is a very supportive part of the um, Instagram community and the indie publishing community, as well as just a funny guy. (laughs) Your comments regularly make me laugh, and (laughs) I just enjoy it. (laughs) Um, Dickie has published three books. He's got Pray, Pray, The Origin of the Average Man, and then Pray, Pray, Hunting Party, The Nurse, which is the sequel of that, or the is it a prequel, I guess, or it's in the same series, <laughs> same world. It's in the it's in the same series. It kind of runs alongside, in some regards, the main yeah. book. Um, it is filling out the background of some of the side characters, which is great. And then he also has a children's book, The True Tale of Peter Piper, which is just fun as well. So, uh, welcome, Dickie. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay, and I'm sure that you get this question all the time, and I know you've told me before, but just for our readers, this is your real name, right? It absolutely is. You know, a little fun fact, it's one of the reasons why I decided to use my real name on my books is because of the stigma that's attached to that name. Um, you know, a lot of people will see my name and they they automatically assume that I'm lying to them. Um, <laughs> I've had job applications where people are like, is that actually your name? I'm like, good God, yes, it's my name. Um, <laughs> It's but so memorable I, though. It's absolutely. Like, it kind of stands out. I like it. It's memorable for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, and through my writing, I plan on changing that. I want to make sure that okay. it's it's one of those things that people can look at. And it's it's frustrating because, you know, my name does get used, at least the first name. Uh, last, mm. Kitchen, nobody uses for anything. But um, <laughs> Dickie has been used in different forms of media and different, you know, stories and in different movies and shows. And the person that they attach the name to is always such a loser. And I just, I gotta do something to change that. (laughs) There you go. Well, you're working hard at that. You have, if I believe right, you have published all three of these books in the last year or year and a half. That's a lot. So my first, well, I'm on the second edition of my debut novel. So I guess that's technically a fourth publication, but the first edition of that, along with my novella, Pray, Pray, Hunting Party, The Nurse, and the children's book all came out the same year. Which is impressive. That's a lot to do in one year. It was. It was a surprisingly busy year. I honestly, uh, I didn't intend it to be that. But that being said, I'd never actually intended to even publish my first book. I was writing it for me. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the end of it, I, was, I just, I, I let a few select people read it and they were like, wow. And so I kind of got the bug in my head and went, maybe I should share this. This this could be fun to share. And and so far, everybody's loved it, which is actually what re- led to the second edition of it, where, you know, I, I t- I'm very serious about taking readers' feedback to heart mm-hmm. and paying attention to, to what is said. And there were a few comments repeated from the first edition that I went, you know what, I think I can do this better. Even though the, at the time, the book had like a I think it was a 4.7 out of five stars on Amazon. Even with that, I was like, yeah, "Yeah, no, I want to take that next step. I want, I want to give the readers everything when I give them the book. That's such a great attitude to have. I love that. I think we can get kind of precious about our work sometimes. We don't want to like take that feedback and it's hard sometimes to take that feedback, but it's so good. And it improves our writing so much when we can really listen with that kind of objectivity or objective. uh, Is that the right word? Or like just distance Mm -hmm. from it. 
Yeah. Well, when I'm talking to other authors, uh, I come across a lot of authors that do exactly like you said, they, they get very personal about the feedback they receive. Mm-hmm. And I tell people all the time, if you're going to write, write with your heart, but receive feedback like a robot. Nothing about feedback is bad. Feedback is simply data. Whether the feedback says you did something incorrectly, correctly, or indifferently, it's all just data. It's all useful. You know, if you have something that your readers are repeatedly telling you, listen, I don't like this aspect, then you should really pay attention to that as a writer. And you should be willing to take that and go, okay, well, if this many people are coming to me and saying this one thing is the thing that bugs them out of all this other stuff, let's get rid of that one thing and keep all the other stuff. And so that's kind of what I did with the second edition of my book is um, everybody that loved it and a few that didn't would come to me and this one topic of just a little parts of pacing. And it wasn't throughout the whole book. It was these little elements that the pacing they felt was off. And I had received the comment enough times where I went, you know what, I think I can make that better. And mm-hmm. so I, I brought my um, editor in from my second book. So I used a different editor on the first edition. We went over to get together and uh, Lynn Pearson is the editor. Uh, all that editing on Instagram, if you guys want to follow her. Great, great editor. Worked with me, really helped me improve the pacing a lot in the second edition. And just really made, you know, a 4.7 star book, a five star book. It, it really helped me bring it to that next level. And I love it for it. That's, That's awesome. fantastic. And with thrillers, the pacing is so key kind of to how it reads I mean I feel like I feel like in story creation in general pacing is really really important but in thrillers in particular you can lose a reader very quickly with your pacing and pacing is so hard to get right I think too because it is sort of um nebulous and a little bit hard sometimes to know how to speed something up or slow something down and how to get that pacing exactly where it should be yeah and there's there's certain elements that by default are going to be slower like scenery descriptions and stuff like yeah. that. There's there's not much you can do to really make that fast. But at the same time, there's still elements that are important to keep in there. Yes. So you have to learn how to really break that stuff up, how to make it to where, make it to where it's like music. You know, you've got mm. the, the beats coming and going as you're going through the story. And it's just, that's the best way that I can describe it anyhow, is to try to make Absolutely. it almost musical. Yeah. I love that. Can we talk about um, tenses and the, you know, immediacy of present tense and then the past tense and how you use it um, in, in the uh, pray, pray, um, in the York So event? I might be the wrong person to talk to about what to do with the tense. Um, <laughs> I kind of broke the rules in multiple levels, honestly, yeah, you did. when I yeah. the first one. Um, and it wasn't unconsciously that I did it. I, it was something that I did because I felt it was the right choice. Yeah. Um, and in Pray, Pray, Origin of the Average Man, the book bounces between present tense and past tense. And present tense is one of those things that you will hear so many people say, never do it, never do it. You can do it. You can do it, absolutely. You can absolutely do it. <laughs> When it's done um, and, well, I love present tense, um, but it is a tricky thing to get right. Well, and in particular for my story, it was important that, that, that it was present tense because yes. when I was writing that story, I wasn't seeing what I was writing in the past. I was very much there with my characters yes. in that moment. And so when I write, it's more like being the first reader than being the creator. As I'm writing, I'm very much in that moment. I'm very much involved in that world and I can only report what I see Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if I'm not seeing something in the past tense 
it takes my mind out of it to try to convert that to past tense. Yes. So when I'm seeing something in the present tense, that's exactly how I'm going to write it is in the present tense. What was a great way to designate to like where the reader was in time? I think it just gave that reader that quick cue of like, okay, now we're here in the prison in the present time. And then, okay, now we're in this story of this backstory of the character. Well, and you might be mad at me then because in the second edition that was removed. <laughs> um, my, my editor, Lynn, told me, she said, you know what? Your readers aren't stupid. Don't treat them like they're stupid. And she said, you can keep that in there if you really feel it's necessary. But I don't think it is. Hmm. And I thought about it and I kind of mulled it over because I really, I put it in there as like a safety rail. Uh, but I mm. didn't really know if it was necessary. And the feedback I've gotten from people since um, has shown that it hasn't been necessary. Hmm. Um, once you get a couple chapters in, that rhythm really sets in. Uh, yeah. You know, again, going back to the, the musical references, the rhythm of the story sets in and you start realizing that basically every other chapter switches past, present, right. past, present, past, mm -hmm. present. You go from sitting in the room with the two main characters, the average man, yeah. the tall man, to the, tall, the average man's past. And it's pretty evident, I think. That makes sense. Okay, so talk about names. You, the other rule you broke is you don't name any of your characters. Which I'll be honest, like going into it, I knew that going into it because I'd seen that on your posts and things. And, and I thought there is no way that works. There's no way. But really like within a, a very short period of time, I, I didn't even notice that it wasn't named. Like it just felt like, oh yeah, that's who that character is. That that <laughs> I love it. Sure. I love it. Um, it was great. I actually ended up really loving it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, that was another very intentional decision on my part. And there's a few risks that I took with the book. Um, that was one of the bigger ones. Mm -hmm. You know, past tense, present tense, I didn't consider that to be that big of a risk because it just worked and I knew it worked when I was reading it. Absolutely. But I set out with the intention of whoever reads The Origin of the Average Man can place whoever they want in those character yeah. roles. You can picture that as your neighbor. You can picture it as your school teacher. You can picture it as whoever you want it to be. And the best way that I knew to do that was to remove more versus add more. You'll notice in the book that the character descriptions are very light. Like you mentioned, the naming structure is essentially don't give them names. Um, everybody in there is referred to as more of a character trait than an actual mm -hmm. name. And that was, again, that was very intentional because I, I want my readers in this book to be able to put whoever they want in those roles. I didn't want to tell them that, you know, the average man was John Smith and he was six foot four and he was slightly overweight or he was, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted them to be able to read this character and go, oh my gosh, I, I know who that is. That person is in my life. Hopefully not too many people have the average man in their life, <laughs> yes. but... There are, there are plenty of things that you can reference and, and look at. And I, I think as I was writing it, that's kind of how it was being created in my head, too. I remember one in particular, the character, the tree. And I was at a concert of all places. Um, and this guy is standing next to me and he's massive. And I look up at him, I'm like, you're in my book. <laughs> it just he he embodied everything I was looking for in that character. And it just. It was funny. It was a Gary Clark Jr. concert, great blues guitarist. <laughs> but I'm sitting there during this concert, music all around. 
and writing a scene in my head as I'm looking at this monster stand next to me. I and love then, that. Inspiration can hit anywhere. And I love absolutely. that. <laughs> you knew it. Like you saw it, you knew it intuitively. You're like, oh, that, that's mine. That's And as a writer, you have to be willing to just roll with it. Um, yes. You know, some people will take methodical notes. Some people will carry a little notepad with them. Me, I tend to just store it in a compartment in my brain and let it just become more. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, I, I don't think the naming structure, I wouldn't necessarily like encourage a lot of people to use the naming structure that I did because it can definitely fail. Um, and that I think with anything you do with it, with creation, with writing, with anything, honestly, any type of creation, if you take a chance, it can fail and that's okay. Um, I was willing to let that happen in order to potentially better the book. With the nature of the character himself, the average man, I think holding what you can back actually made it kind of, you leaned in a little more because you're like trying to figure out who he is, what's going on and holding all that back actually played to the story really well. Yes. And with my writing, when I started that book in 2017, I think, I'd have to go back and check. But when I started that book, I had a beginning and ending. That's it. There was no plan for getting through it. It just was a concept that popped into my head that I was like, that's fine. I'm going to sit down and start working on that. And the character, he changed so many times when I would visualize him. Some days he was nothing more than a shadow in my head. Mm -hmm. some days he was one race some days he was another race some days he was tall some days he was short and it occurred to me that as I'm writing this character he himself did not want to be locked in anything and so I went with it and I said you know what that's fine the little voice in my head is saying it doesn't want to be described it's not going to be described that we're just <laughs> going to roll with it and I think in the end it really worked but it could have failed miserably too yeah. and it's it's not something minor spoiler for anyone that has read the first book and is thinking about reading the second book i'm not going planning to keep the exact same naming conventions throughout everything that's interesting i think it's really important when you take those risks especially when you take those risks to be able to distance yourself from your writing the, the way we talked about earlier because i think what's hard is you can take those risks and not realize that it fails i, I was watching a, a class with an author recently and they said that what makes a, a good author is being able to know when what they wrote didn't work. And I thought it was really a fascinating concept that really it's not about how good of an author you are, a writer you are initially, it's being able to tell, did that work or did it not work? Um, and yeah. being willing to let go of the things that don't work and recognize what does work. And I, and I think really like you, you've clearly done a good job at that because you took some risks and I think they worked, uh, they paid off and you were able to know that they worked and paid off and able to listen to, to people when they said something didn't work. I think it's also important though to realize that things can be situational. What I took risk on in this book worked for this book. It yeah. doesn't mean it's yeah. going to work for every book. And as a writer, I think you need to be willing to accept that too, because it's very easy to, to let yourself become formulaic. It's very easy to let mm. yourself just fall into these repeated patterns and think just because this worked one time, it's going to work every time, but that's yeah. not the way it's going to go. So you have to be willing to take chances, but also know when those chances are worth taking and when you should go. No, just because this worked for book A doesn't mean it's going to work for book B. Yeah, that's a great point. 
so it sounds like your process was really open-ended and I mean, you're a cancer, as they say, or a discovery writer, as people are no, trying to No, I am this. not a cancer. <laughs> okay. What do you call it? What is your word? I, just, I usually refer to it as free writing. Honestly, yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. all of us free writers really missed that meeting where all the planners sat down and said, we're going to call you guys pantsers, because I would have certainly voted no for that. Um, writing wizards, you know, free writers, organic writers, there's so many better things than pantsers. Uh, maybe it's a generational thing for me, but I always knew if somebody was a pantser, they were somebody trying to pull your pants down. <laughs> that is not what I'm doing with my writing, I swear. There's no collection of pants anywhere. Do you have any? I, I want to start a hashtag, no pantser, just to get rid of that. <laughs> Do you have any advice um, or anything that worked for you in that process as you pre wrote? As you know, what worked, what didn't work? How did you go about that? So it's a, it's a little difficult to describe sometimes because really for me, I have to be in the mood to write. I can't just sit down at a specified time and day and say, I will get this many pages done. Mm. It's not gonna happen. I had some writing sprints where I would get a thousand words in an hour. And then I had other times where it was 50. It all really depends on whether or not I'm able to get into the story have my head clear, not have active distractions. Um, and by active distractions, I mean things like my son or wife asking me questions, the phone ringing, um, things that actively got in the way. Passive distractions are fine. You know, no matter what I do, I always sit writing facing a window so that I can see the nature outside going on. And birds and squirrels and, you know, seeing the neighbor walk by or something, those are passive distractions that actually help me because it lets my mind wander a little bit. And the more my mind can wander, the better off that I am, uh, because that's when I tend to get more into the story and more invested. Sometimes if I knew that I was getting ready to write a particular type of scene, I would start off with music, Mm -hmm. something that kind of fed into the emotion of that scene. And then, you know, a few paragraphs in, I would turn the music off and just let myself be fully enveloped in the story. But there's no... And I think that's what makes free writers a little different from planners. There's no set pattern that you say, and before I write, I'm going to take X, Y, Z step. It's a much more organic process. And it's something that because it's a much more organic process can go really, really well some days and really, really bad other days. And you just have to be willing to roll with it. That tends to be how I write too. So it's kind of like um, <laughs> one day you have to like do this thing and then like hop on this foot and like, and then it comes and you're like, I have no idea. It's like you're, you're making a cake and you don't know the recipe and it's like. <laughs> but man, when that cake comes out good, yep. it's amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, I think that's what makes, I don't think personally that I could ever be a planner and it's because when I write, I really am the first reader. I, I'm, I don't consider myself really the creator of what I'm doing so much as just the first person to know the story. Yeah. And it's so exciting to get to those places where you go, whoa, did that just happen? Um, <laughs> I know there's several parts in Origin of the Average Man that I went, holy crap, like I just finished with <laughs> writing. I'm like, what did that, did that really just happen? And then I had to kind of sit back and go, you made it happen. You're the one that typed the keys. <laughs> but it, it's so much fun because of that. You, you yeah. get into the point where you're just so invested in what you're doing because you yourself want to know what happens next. 
And I feel like that would be lost if I was a planner. Like, I feel like if, if I'm sitting there trying to strategize and, you know, take post-it cards and put them all over the place and connect the line from A to B to C, I would just get lost and bored so easily. My mind is a bit of an erratic mess. And it's because of that, that the writing is so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I have a little bit of both or do a little planning usually, but also a lot of free writing. Some um, healthy people do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious though, how do you deal? So something that's sometimes a struggle for me in that is those days when I only get 50 words in an hour or when I hit that wall and can't think of what is going to come next, or I write myself into a hole or I'm like, oh, this was so interesting. And I was so invested in what's going to happen next, but what's going to happen next. And now I have no idea what happens next because I'm just stuck. Like, what do you do in those situations? Or are there ways that you kind of help yourself out of that? Or like, for me, I can kind of heap on shame. Like, oh, I only got 50 words in today. Like, what am I doing? Why? You know, like I should never be an author. Like, um, so yeah, that's kind of a two-part question. Uh, is. One is addressing what to do with word count. The other is addressing what to do when you feel like you don't know where to go. <clears throat> so in regards to word count, some people do really, really well saying, I'm going to write X amount of words today. But I think that you need to learn who you are as a writer. And if that doesn't work for you, immediately disregard it. If I had stuck to word counts, I don't think I would have been very satisfied with the way the book came out. One of the problems that word counts can present is you find yourself caring more about reaching the word count than actually making quality words. Mm -hmm. It's it reminds me of uh, the school assignments where you know you had a research <laughs> paper due and it had to be <laughs> X amount of words. Yeah. And instead of using isn't, you would go is not, and you would break <laughs> everything down into its smallest fractional portion. Just I was really good at those assignments. <laughs> Oh, I, I was really good at making bad words. That's what I was like. My sentences must have looked like a robot wrote them. I would find the longest, most pretentious way to say every little thing I could. Yeah. And just to reach the word count. And, and again, when it comes to word counts, mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons why I don't care about them. Yeah. Because I feel like you're choosing quantity over quality. If I sit down and write 10 good words... I will take that over a hundred bad words any day. You know, again, <clears throat> it's a motivating factor for some people. Some people say that that really helps get them through, but you have to know what kind of writer you are. Mm -hmm. And in regards to word counts, that is not the kind of writer I am. I was always pretty happy when I finished writing, regardless of the length. There were times where I was like, wow, I can't believe I wrote that many words. And there were times that I was like, man, that was a really cool scene. Either time was fine with me. It didn't, it didn't matter to me whether I had 50 words or 5,000 words in a writing session. It only mattered to me that the words mattered. And that's what most people tend to miss when they get hung up in the word count. It's fine. If you want to set a goal for yourself, it's fine. But to beat yourself up over that goal actually kills the creativity. It mm -hmm. takes away from the quality of your work. So don't think that you have to actually do X, Y, Z. For example, I, when I was writing the first book, I knew an average thriller novel was between 70 and 90,000 words. And so I wanted to set somewhere in that goal, mm -hmm. but I at no point told myself this is mandatory. Mm -hmm. And at the end, I, I think the second edition is 74,000. I think the first edition was like 76,000. So, you know, I didn't yeah. make it into that goal, but 
I've met writers that would say, well, I'm going to hit 90,000. And if I took Pray, Pray, Words and the Average Man and pushed them to 90,000 words, mm. it wouldn't be as good of a book. And so yeah. you, you have to be willing to deal with the fact that sometimes less is more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you talk to an editor, they will scream at you that less is more. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Now, the second part of that question, what to do when you get stuck? And this is where I think planners kind of have the the high road on us because a planner typically has everything set out in front of them before they start writing. So if they get stuck, they can refer back to a chart and say, well, this is where I want to go now. For me, when the characters were done talking, I was done writing. And sometimes it would drive me crazy because it might be a few days before they feel like speaking again. But the things that helped me were... First, every time I sat down to write, I would read at least part of what I had written the time before. It helped me to get mentally back into the story. It helped me to kind of re-see and relive what the characters were doing. And often that would honestly be all it took for me to get back into that role and back into that story. Now, there were other times where things weren't going as well, and I could do simple things like take a walk, listen to some music, just anything to kind of let my brain wander and get back into it. Now, as far as getting yourself into a point where you're like, I don't know where to go from here, a lot of times it helps to think less about it. Mm -hmm. Don't let yourself get overwhelmed by where you are. If you've created something great, that means there's a way forward. If you haven't created something great, then that's fine. Go ahead and look at the parts and go, well, this part doesn't actually work or this part doesn't actually work. And again, that's where rereading comes in handy. Sure. A lot of people will yell at me for doing editing as I write. But again, it works for me. Yeah. Um, I think being able to go back and look and go, ah, oh, you know what, that that doesn't actually quite fit there. Let's get rid of that now. Instead of waiting until you're 600 pages in, sure, to go, yeah. oh, page three <laughs> is killing page 100. That, it <laughs> just doesn't work for me that way. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think if you really find yourself stuck, reread what you've done be willing to walk away and come back later. I think those are the two biggest things you can do. Mm. We all want to be on this set schedule to where we tell our readers, we're going to have a book out by February. (laughs) Dag on it, it's going to (laughs) happen. But you know what? I think that's putting too much pressure on the story. And I think you end up losing the quality of the story by putting too much pressure. I think it should be kind of an organic process to where you let it come out. That's so great. Yeah, <laughs> it's painful. It's painful because yes, yeah. there's, there's times when you really do want to get those pages written in it and you yeah, have sure. to walk away <laughs> because yeah. you don't have the right words to say at that moment. I think what's so great in all of that, though, is how um, in tune you are with your process and that everyone's process is so different. Um, but it is so important to recognize what works for you and what doesn't. And, and I think it's great to recognize too, that, and like you said, a lot of people say don't edit, but that's not what works for you and editing works for you. And, and I can totally recognize why, you know, it keeps you from going down the wrong trail too far. And and especially with thrillers, trails are very important. Yeah. You can easily dig yourself into a path where you look back and you go, ah, I messed up half a story ago and now I have to find a way to fix it. Yeah. And it works so much better if you just stay in that moment, you live that scene and you look at it in that moment and go, what could work here? What's not going to work here? Yeah. If you figure that out at step one, you don't have to backtrack at step 1000. Yeah. You know, I know there's a lot of genres out there. Fantasy. I know you guys are big fantasy yeah. fans. We are. <laughs> Fantasy I envy because 
there's so many ways that you could fix plot holes and yes. yes. magic yes. and spells and just all this stuff that is just way detached from reality. And I think it's great because it, it, it is a really cool tool that you guys can use. But as a thriller writer, it doesn't work. Yes. <laughs> you know, if, if, if you get to a big plot hole in thrillers, one of the key concepts of, of most thrillers you'll read is they're somehow based in reality. Yes. And when you come into a plot hole in thrillers, you're not coming to a plot hole that you can just poof your way out of. You're coming yes. to a plot hole that you have to actually logically sit down, yeah. problem solve, and work through. And sometimes that means getting rid of stuff you didn't want to get rid of. Yeah. And other times it means finding ways that just blow your mind to go, holy crap, that's possible. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's it's those stopping points that can be oof, that can be rough. Especially yeah. when you really want to get the book done. That can be yes. rough. <laughs> yeah. But again, I think that comes back to the whole thing about not giving yourself such hard boundaries. Especially as an indie writer, as a self-published writer, I, I'm not doing it for a living nobody mm. is sitting over my shoulder giving me a deadline so why would i do that to myself mm. if you're even and i think that's something people miss too is even traditional writers will have times where they get writer's block yes and they have to reach out to their publisher and go it can't be done mm. and nine times out of ten the publisher is going to be understanding they go all right we'll add an extra month onto the expected date mm. yeah you have to be willing to do that for yourself you have to be willing to sit yeah. there and look at it and go yeah, I wanted this out in March, but you know, it's it's not happening. That's gonna be September. <laughs> you know, you gotta be willing to just allow that. And if you do, you'll find your creative process can grow. Because one of the things that personally I found kills a creative process is undue stress. The more mm. undue stress you put on yourself, the less creative you're gonna feel. That's so true. <sighs> We had so much fun talking with Dickie Kitchen Jr. that we decided to extend the conversation. So join us next week as we continue this conversation and talk about writing rules and Dickie's pretty strong opinion about them. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back and listen to more. If you did enjoy it, please leave us a comment as that helps other people find us. And keep reading, keep writing, and keep putting your work out into the world. Mm-hmm.